Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Daria Willis to our show. Dr. Willis is the president of Everett Community College in Everett, Washington. Hi, Daria. Happy to have you on our show today. Thanks for having me, Dave. Well, can you tell me about Everett Community College and why students select your institution? Absolutely. So Everett Community College is located in Everett, Washington, and it's about 25 or 25 miles north of the Seattle metropolitan area. Um, if you go a little bit further north from EBCC, you'll start to hit some rural areas. So we have a really good space of being kind of urban and rural at the same time. And then we have a really good mix uh, of students from our indigenous populations. So uh, EBCC is also one of 34 community and technical colleges within the state of Washington. And we are one of the larger colleges, uh, probably a mid to large size college, having about 17,000 students um, that we serve per year. And students come to us just like they would any other community college in their region. You know, we are really students first. We are focused on making sure their experience um, is successful as they navigate um, our institution. And we have some really great programs, um, particularly uh, with uh, uh, in line with Boeing, uh, which is one of our partners, which is right next door to us, and many of our healthcare fields, um, including nursing and medical assisting medical technology. So it, it's a really great institution. I'm just so fortunate to uh, serve as the president. You, uh, is there anything new that's going to be happening at Everett uh, this year or next year? Oh, absolutely. Gosh, everything's new. It seems like after COVID. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Everything that we're doing is new. <laughs> but uh, we just had a groundbreaking ceremony last week for our new Cascade Learning Resource Center. It'll be a 64,000 square foot building um, that will house state-of-the-art equipment for students to learn and grow and study in. I'm really excited about that space because we're going to have some really cool, uh, uh, innovative ideas and things for our student parents. So we'll have student parent study spaces where they can bring their kids. And we're also going to feature a children's library um, in that space. And so the children's library also will have books, uh, media equipment, and things that they can use. So uh, we're trying to make sure, again, that the student experience looks good. We're also working on a weekend college program uh, where students can come, uh, adult students specifically, can come to the college on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays to earn a degree. Uh, we know then Washington adult students, uh, they haven't necessarily been ignored, but we need to pay a little bit more attention to them. So I have experience doing weekend college programs in other states. Um, my last state was in New York. So we're really excited about that opportunity as well. You know, so you mentioned the, the weekend college. I, I, I've talked to presidents who've tried to do uh, programs in like 21 days or, you know, I mean, they're always broken up. So how would the Friday, Saturday, Sunday program work for you? Yeah, so the uh, typically the classes would be in the evenings um, around the time when folks are getting off of work. Uh, we're trying to structure the programs where there is an accelerated track and then there's just the, the regular track of the two year pace. 
Um, and we will cohort, put the students in cohorts so that they have peer mentoring, peer navigators, and just that experience with each other. Um, and the students will be expected to either take uh, fully online or hybrid or fully face-to-face -face mm -hmm. classes within that mix. Um, so it's not like they have to show up every weekend, depending on the course and what quarter and all that that they're taking. Uh, when we did the concept in Syracuse, it was very, very successful. Um, and I think they graduated their first class probably in 2020, and it took about two years uh, for those students to get through. And I think about a year and a half for the accelerated track. So what we found is that um, most, of the, most of the students who signed up for it, they were returning uh, adult students who stopped out years ago and could not complete and then had this opportunity to do so. So it was a, just a really special program where we are going to try to make sure that we have all of the wraparound services that you would find mm. Monday through Friday for your traditional student population. We're gonna duplicate that on the weekends as well. Oh, wow. What, uh, what are you launching then? What kind of programs is gonna do the weekend? So we are gonna have first our general studies program and business. And oh. then after that, we will build on, uh, we'll continue to build as we see these two programs start get kicked off. Oh, sure. That makes sense. Considering you had stop out students. That's, mm -hmm. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about you for a little bit. I've, I've, I've seen you on YouTube. I, you've, you've done some, some presentations there. Uh, can you talk about yourself and the path that led you to become the 17th president and the first African-American president at Everett? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think I'm pretty boring, but <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but pretty boring individual. But um, I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia, uh, raised uh, by my mom and dad. My, my dad passed uh, early on when I was about six or seven years old. And that left my brother and I um, to be raised by my mom. I uh, went to college early. Uh, I was an early admission student at Florida A&M University in Tallahassee, Florida. So I was about four hours away from home. There I took up history uh, as my major and I did all three degrees, my bachelor's, master's and PhD in history. Um, I got my PhD from Florida State University, which is literally right across the street from Florida A&M. So I had the best of both worlds. I went to a historically black college university and then I went to a majority institution for my PhD. Um, a really special time uh, in college uh, um, and understanding how to study people which I am really fortunate that I took history because it, I think it's really helped me as I've navigated this journey as an administrator and now president. Um, following uh, my studies, I moved to uh, Tomball, Texas. Oh, that was back in like 2010. Um, and I started my career as an assistant professor of history after serving as an adjunct faculty member for several years. Um, I was in the Lone Star College system, which is about 95,000 students. Um, pretty large system in the Houston area. And I served at three campuses in that system and went from uh, at, uh, what, assistant professor all the way to dean. I served also as a faculty senate president. So I got my foot wet, my feet wet as to what it meant to be an administrator and how what it means to run a college. Um, and that was really uh, invigorating. Um, it was fun, but I didn't know what I was getting myself into until I I actually got into the position. So I then went to Lee College in Baytown, Texas and served as Dean of Academic Studies for a year and then went to Syracuse, New York uh, for three years to serve as Provost and Senior Vice President 
for academic affairs at Onondaga Community College. And I have to say, it was my first time ever seeing snow in real life. Um, <laughs> being a girl of the South, that, that was just never in the playbooks for me. So that was fun. And then in 2019, I became president at EBCC. And in this whole time, uh, I've had my family as my support system. I have three kids. My oldest is now 17, Lyric. My middle child, Izzy, is nine. And the baby, she just turned three uh, on the 20th of this month. And my husband, he's also a faculty member at SUNY Oswego. So it's been quite a journey. Um, and and I, you know, I wouldn't redo it uh, if I had the opportunity because every position that I had, uh, I think has helped prepare me for um, where I am today. Yeah, you know, since you, you mentioned that you were a president, I'm sorry, that you were a part of Senate and you were their, their chair, which is an interesting position that they say the least, especially when you then leave that faculty environment, move into uh, administration. So tell me, tell me what, what you can tell um, other presidents on that bridge between transitioning from faculty to to administration. How do you, how do you work with a shared government's environment since now you know both sides? Yeah, it, I'll say it's really tough making that transition, a tough decision um, because I had a really flexible schedule. Um, I taught my classes. I had a couple online, a couple face-to-face. I was home by two o'clock in the afternoon, sitting at the bus stop, waiting for my kid to get off the bus. I mean, it was probably the best job that you could ever have. Um, So when it came to, so do you really want to be an administrator where you're going to have to work 40, 50, 60 hours a week um, and deal with people? Uh, Because that's the hardest part of the job. It's not the paperwork. It's not the legal stuff. It's the people that you have to deal with. Um, That was uh, the, the deciding point. Uh, but, but, you know, I guess for me, and it, as I say, it, it, if I give, can give advice to other folks, for me, it was really about what do I want to do and where does my heart lead me? And I really enjoyed teaching, but I'll be honest, I got kind of bored teaching History 1301 and 1302 every semester. I mean, there's nothing that's really going to change when you talk about Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War and all that stuff. Uh, so, I mean, it is what it is. But what I wanted is to have a broad impact over students with the stroke of a pen. Um, and I wanted to have that type of uh, positive impact over them. So I started looking at administration, but it, it was a difficult transition because then you had to, as you say, with the shared governance system, um, on the one hand, as a faculty member, I was campaigning for faculty to get all of these things, such as better parking and this and that and everything else. Then as an administrator, I'm like, really, y'all just want better parking? Can we talk about some other things, right? <laughs> so it was, it, it, it was interesting to see the dynamic as to how my mind even shifted, but uh, depending on the position. Um, but I'm glad that I had the opportunity as a faculty member because uh, I could speak the language of faculty even in the position as an administrator and to get the buy-in necessary to move the institution a certain direction. So it's certainly um, a tricky thing because especially if you make the transition at your institution that you kind of grew up in as a faculty member because now they're no longer your peers, they are your subordinates and you're their supervisor. So that takes an adjustment as well. But, um, you know, if if your heart leads you to 
to, to making that broad impact outside of the classroom, which is where I ended up landing and, and I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. I say, just go for it. So was there like an aha moment when you said, I think I want to move into administration. I want to be a president or I want to be a dean. So I, I, I don't know if I had an aha moment. Well, I'll take it back a couple years um, when when I was in the graduate program at Florida a and I had the, the Dean of Grad Studies and Research had me do a research project on black women presidents in the US. And she said, find as many as you can. And at the time I, I found several, but not as many as I had hoped. And I think at that moment, she was trying to get me to see something in myself that I had not seen you know, uh, uh, for myself in the mirror. Um, and then from there, it wasn't until I was a faculty senate president, then I dipped my toe into being a department chair, that I got to the point to where I, I got frustrated because I always had to report to somebody and ask someone's permission to do what I thought was right for students. <laughs> and um, because of that, I remember when I became a chair, I said, you know what, I can't do it. I have to always ask the dean. So now I'm going to go be the dean. And then I became the dean and I figured out that I was stuck in between a rock and a hard place. And I was like, oh my God, I hate this position. Now I'm going to be the provost. And then I became the provost and I was like, oh my God, this is hard, you know, uh, trying to move a whole body of faculty. And yes, I had a broad stroke to, to make things happen, but I wanted to do what the president was doing because it seemed like she was doing the cool stuff and she had the ultimate decision-making power. So I started talking to her about, okay, what does it mean to be a president? And she sent me on different professional development um, uh, ventures so that I could build a network and such. So I went to the Lakin Institute for mentor leadership. And I also did the ELI executive leadership Institute. So she sent me to both of those in the same semester. So that was the most amazing experience that I've ever had. And it was at that point that I said, okay, I can do this job. And then I became a president and I'm still, I love my job. However, I want to, I want to see a broader impact, you know, because we, I have this impact over my campus, one of 34 in Washington. And so I just have a vision that one day, you know, I'll be able to work on some, some legal proposals or whatever that we, that, that can be spread across, you know, community colleges or higher education institutions that benefit them. So I, I would say that I was always looking for the next step. Um, and I still am to have that broad stroke, but I don't think for me that it will necessarily stop as a president. However, I am currently enjoying what I'm doing. You know, that that's really cool that you had a president that was a, like a mentor that really assisted you on the path. I, you know, a lot of times people don't mm -hmm. get that. So I, I, I commend your, mm -hmm. the, the, the previous people you've worked for. So with that said, do you, do you have anything, are you trying to set up anything at Everett that can assist that, that those next steps for faculty wanting to move into administration? Are you developing any uh, official or unofficial uh, mentorship program or anything like that? Yeah, we have a, um, th there is a current uh, leadership program where faculty and lower level or mid-level administrators can participate in. Um, but I am working to, uh, you know, I wouldn't say it's a program, but I'm trying, well, 
I'm trying to give as much space and opportunity for people to be able to make that decision. So for example, last year, we brought the first American Association for Women and Community Colleges chapter to the campus. And I wanted to do that specifically for women because I heard there were a lot of women on the campus who wanted leadership opportunities, but didn't have a resource and a network to build that. So we brought that uh, uh, a program to the institution. And it's been amazing because we've been able to bring outstanding women leaders to our monthly meetings. And so uh, regular everyday women who are working on the campus have an opportunity now to have access to these CEOs and executive leaders and can ask them questions about what it means to be in a leadership position. And then I also take the time to just give back the same way it was given to me. Um, when people ask, you know, can you be my mentor or help me out or talk about different uh, issues that they may be having, I always have an open door policy for that. It just, whether it's on my campus or just within the network um, outside of campus uh, at other colleges across the country. So I'm really fortunate to do that. Um, and like I said, it's all about just giving back, but it's not a I wouldn't say a program per se right. that I've come up with, um, but, you know, just giving back the same way it was done for me. It's just been amazing. Well, it definitely sounds like you're having some type of unofficial process there for people to, to move forward. So I, I, so I commend you on that. That's very cool. What um, I'm looking at my questions right here. And there was one that uh, your college kind of stands out among a lot of the community colleges in the country. And that has to do with, um, your recognition from achieving the dream as a leader college of distinction. Uh, I'm not very familiar mm -hmm. with that because I didn't, I, I, I was at a two-year college, but I wasn't at a community college. So can you um, tell me how did you achieve that recognition? And also what does that mean for the college? Absolutely. Um, and that recognition was achieved prior to my arrival. I'm at EBCC. I can't take credit for that. I <laughs> wish I could, but it's basically, uh, it, it really means that our institution is making some significant gains in, in student uh, completion, retention, and success. So we have been able to, or we are working really hard to close the achievement gaps between our students of color and our white students. Um, we have uh, been leaders in the state and even the nation on some of our diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. Uh, one in particular, the five dimensions of equity, which we hold ourselves to um, as a standard to say that this is who we want to be. Um, and we're also walking the talk. Um, there are a lot of institutions out there that are just talking about it uh, because, well, let's be honest, uh, DEI is a sexy term right now. Everybody's yes. talking about it. Right. But um, we're making gains in actually living it and putting it into practice. So when the college applied for um, this ATD Leader College of Distinction category a few years back, it, it was really about uh, the percentages that we have reached to uh, uh, um, be successful with uh, retention and completion initiatives and how we are closing those achievement gaps. It helps us with um, grant applications to kind of stand out. We just submitted our most recent Title III uh, grant award. So hopefully we will um, hear some news about that very soon. Um, and, and just other things that we've been able to uh, attain such as Illumina. Uh, we got an Illumina uh, grant um, for our weekend college program. And I oh, think cool. things like being a leader college of distinction helped us to stand out in the application process. Well, since you mentioned DEI, um, 
let me put you on this, the spot and just ask this really broad-based question is, sure. what suggestions do you have to improve DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion on college campuses? What can, what can presidents and deans and chancellors do today to kind of move that forward? Sure. Yeah, I think you need to come up with a common term for equity uh, on your campus. What does that mean? Because we're all talking about equity, but we all have different understandings and meanings of that. So one of the ways that we're trying to do that at EBCC, uh, we have a book that we're reading from Equity Talk to Equity Walk. And the first thing that book says is define equity. And so we are doing that as an institution and we're using it as our common read this year. The board of trustees is also, we led a, um, what did we lead? We led a retreat with them in August with the book discussion. And we started looking at our data. And from that point, we have also commissioned a task force on equity that looks specifically at our policies and procedures. Because let's face it, most of two most two year institutions came around in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. When you look at American history at that time, it wasn't the most equitable time um, for black and brown black and brown people. And a lot of our policies that we have in the books uh, um, have their foundation in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And so we've been finding things that are still causing harm to students today that have been left in our policies from way back when. So again define what equity means, get a shared and common understanding of that, look at your policies and procedures, and don't just go out and say, oh, we're going to mirror our student population by hiring all these people that look like them, but actually do the work to make that happen. And then when you bring those people on campus, make sure that they have a, a, um, they have a feeling of belonging. Because like, for example, in a place like Everett, it is very white. Um, it's not as diverse as other places across the country or even within the state. So if we bring people in that are of color, how do they build community? How do we make sure that they stay with us? So you have to think about that as well. Um, but, and, and then make sure that it's a labor of love and not just an initiative, but this is the direction that the college is going to be going for the foreseeable future because initiatives are here today and gone tomorrow. So um, we wanna make sure that, that it's in the lifeblood of the institution. And those are some heartfelt comments. I, I think you really hit it on the head. I think people talk about, talk about equity, but they don't define it. So, I mean, you know, I've talked to uh, small, uh, small colleges when you talk about equity and they're talking about their rural population, which is a whole, I mean, it's just, yes, I, I really like that, mm. that uh, definition. Nobody's ever said that before. So, so thanks for sharing mm -hmm. that with us, Daria. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. um, What's been some of your proudest moments so far as president at Everett? Uh, that I still survived the, <laughs> the pandemic. Okay. <laughs> I'm still able to get up every day. No, <laughs> but seriously, some of the proudest moments, um, you, you know, I, I was, we just kind of reopened our doors, not that our doors were closed, but you know, everyone had to kind of buckle down during the pandemic. But this week was our first week of classes and it was a surreal moment. It was one of the happiest moments I've had because I remember the day that we shut down and told everyone to leave campus and let's go online. And that was probably the worst day of my presidency, just watching the cars leave campus, you know, in mass. Um, but this week, the parking lots are half full and we've got students walking around campus and folks are sitting on the lawn uh, talking to each other. And it's, that's been 
the most beautiful site that uh, I could ever have. Um, another proud moment when we had our uh, commencement, we had a car commencement parade this past June, and we had over 200 something graduates join us. And it was a beautiful site again, to see people in person. Um, this week, we also announced paying off $1.2 million in student debt that, that was owed to the college um, on their accounts. Uh, we had a disproportionate amount of our students who still owed a balance due to COVID. So uh, we were able to pay those accounts to zero balance and that impacted 3,442 students and over 50% of those students were students of color. So um, that was an amazing moment. And then probably the other proudest moment I have is the work that we're doing with student parents. And I say that because I was a former student parent. I was 19 years old when I got pregnant and I was in college and I had this baby and um, I felt like I was invisible sometimes. Uh, there was no place for me to study with my kid. There was no place for me to nurse my kid in a safe, clean spot on campus. And we've been doing some really, really hard work, um, making sure that our moms and dads have equal access to the buildings and that they're able to bring their kids and their kids can see that maybe one day I can go to college too. Um, so we're really looking at a two generational approach. And so um, student parents are near and dear to my heart. And we have made just in the last two and a half years, great strides in uh, um, uh, supporting our student parents and making sure that they know that we love them, that we care about them and that their children know that this place is for them as well. Excellent. Well, what's, what's uh, been some of the biggest lessons learned I guess I'll use that term. Biggest lessons learned so far, uh, being in being an academic leader, and what could you pass on to new college presidents that you think would be helpful? Yeah, hmm. you know, I think one expect the unexpected. Uh, you need to be comfortable being uncomfortable. <laughs> Uh, no, I agree. I, I, I totally agree. On that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because you never know what's going to hit you and every day could be different. I mean, you can have a whole calendar of events and one thing can literally change the shape of what your day will look like. I think the other piece is the biggest part of this job is people. I, I think I said that earlier, but I can't stress that enough the interactions that you have with people and how you deal with those people um, because you'll have happy people, you'll have mad people, you'll have sad folks. And how do you navigate between those? And then you just have those who are just gonna be difficult just because. Um, but I think more importantly, um, self-care is so important uh, as a president because we give a lot of our time and space and energy uh, around the clock, you know, your job never really stops. And I learned, especially over this pandemic, that self-care is important and that if you aren't taking care of yourself, then you won't be able to be there to take care of your family or your college. So find a way to exercise, you know, three to five times a week and eat a good diet. Uh, um, take some mental health days, ask your board or your chancellor, whoever you report to, for additional vacation time. And I used to think about like, why does a president get all that vacation time? 
now I see why, um, because you really, really need that time away and alone and by yourself to, to, to think and pray and to um, chart your path going forward. But, you know, just take care of you because we all, we all as new presidents, we're so excited. We're going to change the world. This is our first presidency. Um, and then you get in it and you're like, OK, this isn't all about me. I got to make sure I look at the students, look out for them. But then that wears on you every day and then dealing with people that wears on you day in and day out. And I've seen folks, unfortunately, um, expire a little too early. You know, they passed away or they retired. And then a couple months later, they're sick and they never really got to enjoy anything. So, you know, self-care to me is just number one out of everything that you can do as a new president. You have any uh, favorite books on leadership that you would recommend to other academic leaders? Yes. Uh, there's one I'm reading now. Start with why. Um, let me see if I can pull it real quick. I, I need to. It's sure. right here. But it's called Start with Why, How Great Leaders Inspire Everyone to Take Action. Mm. Uh, it's by Simon, and I'm going to say his name wrong, Sinek, S-I-N-E-K. And it doesn't necessarily talk about higher ed leadership, but just leadership in general and how important it is to make sure that the folks you are charged to lead know your why. Um, and when they know your why and understand your why, it's easier or it makes, uh, it's, it's not that tough of a sale to get people to follow the direction and the vision that you have because they know your why. Um, and so I've really been diving deep into this book uh, and I think it's about my second time reading it, but it's been um, probably the best leadership book that I've read this year. Wow, great. Um, what questions do you think need to be asked regarding the future of higher education as we're getting out of this pandemic? If, if we ever get out of this pandemic, I guess. So, you know, I'll take that back to pre-pandemic when we couldn't get science faculty, for example, to have a class online or there were math faculty who said, oh, we can never teach this class online. Oh, the academic rigor will be. And there's some truth to that. And I know I'm being a little facetious here, but there's, there's some truth to that. However, when the pandemic hit, the first people who were knocking on my door saying that we need to shut down and move online were the same ones who said that we couldn't teach our classes online to begin with. And now that we're trying to navigate and deal with the pandemic and life still during this phase, the same folks, I still can't get them to come back. So the question is, why did it take a pandemic for higher ed to become truly innovative and shift so quickly? And are we more interested in ourselves or are we looking out for our students and the next generation of leaders who will take this world and take our country to the next level, or we hope so. So I, I, I often think about that because I swear I had a phone call um, when we were all still trying to figure out what was happening with the pandemic, pandemic and it was faculty members saying, close, 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 we gotta close. Yes, I can move my stuff online, da, 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 da. And, and interestingly enough, we've looked at our success rates at EVCC and 
our success rates are still on par with what they were pre-pandemic with those classes being online. So why did it take us so long to get there? And what do we need to do to move forward, right? Because at my college, we have been working on our strategic plan during the pandemic. And people say, why would you build a new strategic plan during a pandemic? So this is the perfect time to do it because now you can be your most innovative and creative as you think about what it's gonna to take to get ourselves out of this and how we serve students in our communities uh, five to 10 years from now. So we are asking those very same questions. We're putting equity at the center of uh, the building of our strategic plan, but we're also looking at, you know, what is the future of higher education uh, when this pandemic is over? Because none of us expected to have a global pandemic and, for, and even expected us to have it this long. Um, and I think that it's gonna be with us for you know, the foreseeable future. So how do we deal with it? Not let us, not let this pandemic stop us in our tracks and make sure that we are providing uh, innovative um, educational solutions for the next generation of leaders that are gonna come our way. So, uh, what do you see higher ed doing, especially um, uh, community colleges doing over the next five to 10 years to meet the needs of business and industry? So we had a, 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 an interesting industry panel with um, Congressman Rick Larson, uh, and it was around the aviation sector and how they're going to have to rebuild over the next uh, few years. And it was really an enlightening conversation with those industry leaders uh, because you know they were saying, we've got all these jobs here. We need people to be skilled and told quickly, right? Um, and I think that we're going to have to, how do I say this without getting myself stoned in the courtyard when I get back to campus, but we're gonna have to be a little, I'm not, I, I, don't, I don't have the words, but we, we need to not have so much of the traditional in our mindset. And I, I say that because things like competency-based education, and I often think about, well, who says that it takes 50 minutes, three times a week to learn material right. in a book? or that it takes 16 chapters that aligns with your semester-based schedule to teach US history? Or do we have prior learning assessment um, and giving our students credit for that? Like, I think we need to, uh, uh, in order to meet the demands and the needs of business and industry, we've gotta be a little bit quicker about how we run our operations at our colleges and how we, um, give students the skills that they need, but not necessarily in the traditional amount of time that we have done it in the past. Because the industry is changing, um, the workforce is changing, uh, and what our industry leaders need is constantly shifting. So we need to be like Plato. We need to be able to mold and to reshape ourselves uh, and then to anticipate what some of those changes are and not be so reactive. So um, I would like to see community colleges and some are already doing this, right? You know, more competency-based education programs out there, 
uh, more opportunities for prior learning credit for students. Uh, do they really have to take that Algebra 1 class? <laughs> you know, I was one of those students. I hated math. Now I use it all the time, consequently, as a president. But um, it's not those, I, I'm not using algebra when I'm looking at the college budget uh, every day. I'm using simple addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, and percentages. So, you know, we need to revise our programs to meet students' needs and where they want to go and meet the needs of the business and industry and where they want to go and stop having this traditional mindset that everybody has to take all of these courses. Yes, we want to build citizens who can think for themselves and who can make good decisions, but that doesn't mean that they have to sit in our classrooms uh, for three to four hours a week to learn certain material that you think is necessary. So I think we need to kind of get out of our own way, um, be a bit more flexible and speed the process up a little bit more, especially if we're gonna get ourselves out of this pandemic and answer the needs to what our industry leaders need. Those are wonderful comments to end our program. Excellent. I, I totally agree with you on that, Daria. I think, I think if Amazon or any of these big businesses got into to higher ed, I think they would be doing exactly what you're talking about. And so I think the colleges need to mm -hmm. stay, stay ahead of the, the business sector to, to do mm -hmm. higher ed. So excellent point. Mm -hmm. Well, Daria, thanks so much for being on our show. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you. I enjoyed it as well. Well, that wraps up today's show. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.